The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates in CNN Tonight. Laura. John, thank you. Nice seeing you again. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. You know, amid all of the confusion, all of the uncertainty about whether Russia will really invade Ukraine, I guess perhaps it's fitting that President Biden had announced to America today that we are prepared for anything, quote, no matter what. So what exactly does that mean? Does that mean prepared to be proactive, reactive? And what would a Russian war with Ukraine actually cost the United States? And what would it cost Russia in the end as well? Now, the president of the United States, he tried to manage expectations today, almost like a lawyer talking to their clients about what to expect and laying the groundwork and signaling to the American people that we would not be caught flat-footed. But the president of the United States, well, he's well aware that there are televisions also in Russia. And it seems that he hopes that Vladimir Putin was one of those television viewers. The United States is prepared no matter what happens. We are ready with diplomacy. We are ready to respond decisively to Russian attack on Ukraine, which is still very much a possibility. The United States and NATO are not a threat to Russia. Ukraine is not threatening Russia. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. And I do not believe you want a bloody, destructive war against Ukraine. If Russia attacks Ukraine, it'll be met with overwhelming international condemnation. The United States and our allies and partners will respond decisively. The West is united and galvanized. You know, you have to wonder if that entire speech, if it was played at all, particularly the part about the President of the United States reaching out and talking to the people of Russia, comparing perhaps what they would want to their President Vladimir Putin and what he wants, it seems. But President Biden listed a series of consequences for Russia if Putin does go through with any threatened invasion, like much tougher sanctions than back in 2014, and undermining Russia's ability to even compete economically at all. And remember that major new Russian-German gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2? Well, that'd be gone too. Now, all of this, all of this talk of the sanctions and possibilities, this in spite of Russia's talking now of pulling back its forces from the Ukrainian border. It seems President Biden isn't in, however, a trust but verify kind of mood. He's not totally buying any of it. NATO Secretary General, well, isn't either. Or, by the way, Ukraine's foreign minister, for that matter, who says his country has a rule. Quote, we don't believe what we hear. We believe what we see. And so what we're still seeing, frankly, is Russia moving forces around, amassing more than 150,000 troops circling Ukraine and, of course, now Belarus. And Biden says the U.S. hasn't actually verified whether Russian military units are really, in fact, returning to their home bases after their drills as has been claimed by Putin and the like. And though Putin may, well, he may say he doesn't want war. Do we want it or not? Of course not. That's exactly why we put forward proposals on negotiating process which should result in an agreement on ensuring equal security for all, including our country. Of course not, he says. Of course not. He doesn't want war. He says he wants to negotiate. But if past his prologue, frankly, many are now wondering if diplomacy is possible here or is it an exercise in futility? 
Well, for now, it seems President Biden, he still hopes that this can, in fact, be resolved diplomatically. Biden says, quote, we should give diplomacy every chance to succeed. But he also warns the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory with the full force of American power if Russia messes with the alliance. Now, Ukraine, of course, we know isn't actually NATO territory. So the U.S. won't put boots on the ground there. But the reality is the boots of thousands of our troops are no longer on American soil. They might not be in Ukraine, but they are being deployed to the neighboring countries of Ukraine to then bolster NATO. And even though Ukraine is not a NATO member, that's part of the entire crux of the issue, it hasn't actually stopped the U.S. and some of our allies from giving Ukraine the equipment and the training it might need to defend itself, albeit on a smaller scale. So the question really is, with all this happening, what is next? What are we to expect? How do we as Americans evaluate this? Was this new warning from Biden effective? Will it mean that Putin can be walked back from the brink of war? Are we really at that stage right now? I want to go to CNN's Sam Kiley live in Kharkiv, Ukraine. He's actually close to the border with Russia as we speak. Sam, thank you for being here. What are you seeing out there right now? There's just kind of a back and forth of are we, aren't they, will they, won't they? What are you learning? Well, it's very stressful, obviously, for the people of Ukraine. I'm just 50 miles uh, from Bielograd, uh, which is a Russian city where the equivalent number of forces have been assembled that are the same size as the British Army on the Russian side. Uh, in the last uh, two and a half days, they've uh, received uh, additional helicopter gunships, similar numbers of uh, gunships, about 60-plus gunships, and uh, transport helicopters have also been now spotted by satellite imagery in Crimea. So it looks like uh, they are getting much closer to the uh, point at which they might actually trigger a D-Day, an invasion day, a day for some kind of military action on the Russian side. That said, the Ukrainians today, later on today, it's about three in the morning now, uh, are going to be celebrating what they're calling Unity Day in a slightly ironic attempt to lampoon uh, briefings that have come out of America uh, suggesting that uh, today might be a day that the Russians choose to invade. Uh, the, but the Ukrainians are trying to keep a lid on national panic, effectively. Uh, that was slightly uh, shaken uh, in the last few hours by a, deni a distributed denial-of-service attack on a number of websites, including the Ministry of Defence and the Armed Forces website and a couple of banks here. These uh, have not been directly attributed to Russia, but obviously the finger of suspicion points there, very deep concerns that Russia ultimately, if it does decide to attack, will use as part of its weaponry uh, cyber warfare. This latest attack does not look like cyber warfare, more like an information operation, a kind of messing with people's heads, uh, if you like. But at the same time, there isn't a real sense of the level of concern that's being expressed by uh, Biden, for example, and the international community here on the ground in big cities like Kharkiv. There's a million and a half people here. They are generally pretty relaxed, Laura. Well, you know, that's what strikes me in many ways as maybe odd for a lot of people. The idea of this imbalance, Sam, on the one hand of President Biden, mm. I don't want to call him an alarmist, but certainly sounding an alarm for people to be cautious. And what we're hearing on the ground in Ukraine, you know, we're all wondering here, is it a matter of this is really imminent or it's a matter of the Ukrainian president trying to balance and, and have cooler heads maybe prevail on the ground? Great reporting, Sam. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. 
you know, even as we try right now to sort out where things stand in, on the ground in Ukraine, as I talked to my colleague Sam about, in the U.S. Senate, you, you've now got these dueling responses, these packages from Republicans and Democrats over what sanctions Russia should actually face if it does invade into Ukraine. I've got Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, who sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, and he joins me now. Senator Kaine, thank you for being here and welcome to you. Laura, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. And Senator, you know, to that notion, there is some confusion, frankly, from the American people. We're hearing about the idea of this day trying to, in Ukraine, trying to put a lid on um, any alarmist notions. You've got the president of the United States having a briefing today on what's going on. From the Americans' perspective, what is going on, Senator? Is there really an imminent threat as it's being obviously relayed to us? Or is there something more happening in the background? Well, Laura, I, I will say the facts are fairly straightforward, and I think both the United States and our allies agree about what Russia is doing on the border with Ukraine, where there is some significant difference, especially between America and our European allies, is a prediction about what Vladimir Putin intends to do. So again, that, that Russia is marshalling an unprecedented force on the Ukrainian border and carrying out exercises in Belarus, which is geographically very uh, proximate to Kyiv rather than eastern Ukraine, that's all happening. I would say the U.S. intel community's assessment is that Putin is likely to do a significant land invasion of Ukraine. But I have, I have noticed very carefully in the last few weeks in conversation with European allies, the EU and others, they acknowledge the facts, but they are not yet as comfortable with the prediction about what Putin might do. And in fact, in the nine years that I've been in the Senate, this is probably the farthest apart that the U.S. and our European allies have been about predicting what might happen. The good news well, is, well, Senator, on that, I don't want to excuse me. I don't want to cut you off there. But on that point, I mean, it, it does strike you, and should strike everyone as a bit odd that there is really a distinction, for example, between how seriously Washington is taking this issue and how seriously they're taking it in Kyiv. And the question for so many people, obviously, when you're not talking about a NATO uh, member, when you're not talking about um, obviously joining at, at this juncture, that strikes a chord with the American people. And then to see, frankly, in the Senate, as we're learning that there is the distance, not only from European allies, but Senator, in terms of what Republicans and Democrats are thinking prospectively about sanctions, why is there that disconnect there as well um, in your neck of the woods? Well, well, let me complete what I was going to say. It's, it's, it's not that surprising that people might have different opinions about what Vladimir Putin would do. We're not Vladimir Putin, and we're not mind readers. The good news is that the United States and our European allies are very unified on what we would do if he were to invade the sovereignty of Ukraine. So you can't predict what Vladimir Putin is going to do with near certainty. The guys hold up mostly in Sochi not really, uh, he has yes men around him and not interlocutors that you can get the window into his thinking. So predicting what he'll do is a, is a rough science at best. But the good news is the United States and our European allies are very unified about the degree of consequences that would immediately flow from any invasion of Ukraine. 
So, but yeah, Senator, on that point, but Senator, on that point, as I asked earlier, on that point, there might be accord with the European allies, but Democrats and Republicans are not in alliance in terms of what those sanctions can be. A lot of this does seem, although it's hard to predict and read the tea leaves of, of um, Vladimir Putin, some of this behavior is predictable because we have seen it before. Why is it taken so long for the Senate to act or try to try to figure out a way of sanctions? And why are you far apart having separate notions about how to sanction the possibility of the invasion? Well, again, I'm going to I'm going to go back to um, the, the difference between Democrats and Republicans on this is whether you should impose sanctions in advance or that would be the Republican position or whether you should just announce what sanctions would be imposed if there's an invasion. The, the extent and the consequence and the magnitude of sanctions, there really isn't any significant difference between Democrats and Republicans. There is some difference on timing. That is an important difference. But I think the, uh, the fact that we all stand for Ukraine against Russian aggression, aggression in Ukraine and a willingness to impose significant consequences if there's to be an invasion of, of Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, and not only are we together on that in Congress, we're together with our European allies. We can't predict Vladimir Putin, and we have a difference of opinion about the timing of when sanctions should be imposed. I strongly agree with the Democratic position on this. Don't impose sanctions in advance, only impose sanctions if there's bad behavior. That's where we are right now. Senator Tim Kaine, thank you so much for helping to explain and clarify. This is a point of extraordinary concern for the American people. I appreciate it. Indeed, you bet. Glad to be with you. Thank you, Senator. And we'll continue to watch developments in Ukraine. But up ahead, one of the former police officers who stood by as George Floyd was murdered, he took the witness stand today. Did his training play a role in his decision not to intervene? And what could that mean for his fate? And by the way, those are the other two remaining officers who he is on trial with. Our police and legal specialists join me next. There they are. So the first of three former Minneapolis police officers on trial for violating George Floyd's civil rights took the stand today. Tu Tao was the officer who stood on crowd control duty while Floyd was being killed under Derek Chauvin's knee. Tao says that as he kept his eyes on the people on the street, he relied on his fellow officers to monitor Floyd's condition, claiming that because they weren't performing CPR, that he believed that Floyd was fine even though he was present when Floyd stopped talking and the surrounding crowd was pleading for officers to check Floyd's pulse. Joining me now to discuss is criminal defense lawyer Joey Jackson and former police commissioner Charles Ramsey. What a night to have you all here and what a pleasure as well, gentlemen. Let me start with you, Joey Jackson, on this because, look, the American people watched the Derek Chauvin trial with bated breath, frankly. That was one person on the stand, one person on trial. Now we've got three defendants. You have handled so many different cases, let alone co-defendant cases. What's different here about the strategy when you've got three co-defendants who really have different roles they played in the overall act? Yeah, Laura, great question. Good to be with you and good to be with you, Chief. You know, it's very difficult, I think, when there are co-defendants. The reason being is because I think you have extra prosecutors, right, who are in the jury room. 
the defense is trying to get their client not convicted. And by doing that, they're placing blame on other people. And I think the testimony today of this particular defendant, Tutau, was damning and quite frankly terrible, not to mince words. If the essence of what I had to sum it up was with, Laura, it would be, it wasn't my job. Really? It's not your job? Sir, there was a crowd there and they kept yelling that he needed medical attention. Weren't you there? Weren't you interacting with the crowd? Didn't you see and hear what they were pleading for you to do? Didn't you look back and didn't you make observations, which he admitted to, Laura, on the stand that he saw what was happening? Weren't you standing next to George Floyd for six of those nine and a half minutes? Just so many things. Didn't you hear him stop talking? Didn't you hear him say, I couldn't breathe? And so, so many things that he admitted to, essentially, to Tao on the stand in defense of himself, I think will come back to haunt him. I think it was, you know, a move that the defense needed to make by putting him there, but he did himself no favors uh, in my estimation. Now, Chief Ramsey, that point that Joey's raising, I mean, the idea, each officer obviously having a different role, different role. One, he, of course, thinks he was playing crowd control and says, you know, it wasn't his job to paraphrase what he was talking about. What do you see in terms of this? Because what would the jobs have been? You have three officers on the scene. In some instances, you know full well, it's more officers than that, sometimes less. What do you think the training was or should have been or maybe should be in terms of what the responsibilities are of other officers on the scene? Well, the primary responsibility of all the officers is the protection of life and the safety of the person being arrested, period. That's all four of them had that responsibility. And they failed in that responsibility. Uh, the officer who testified today claims that, you know, his training eight years ago or nine years ago, uh, certain tactics or techniques were used. That's really not even relevant. Every year, uh, in-service training is conducted for police officers. It's what's currently being taught mm -hmm. that really matters. The law changes, policing changes, tactics all those things change. So he may have learned something nine years ago. What did he learn in 2019, 2020, when he went through in-service training? And I'm certain that having someone's knee on a neck for nine and a half minutes was not part of the training. And, and lastly, just one more point. He's saying the other three officers had it under control. Two of those officers were rookies. That alone, if you're a veteran officer, would make you turn around to see what's going on because Chauvin was there with two very inexperienced people. That and alone yet, would make you pay closer attention. And yet, one of the officers who was a rookie was an officer of the last name Lane. And I want to show this to the audience, and I warn you, this could be quite distressing to remember what we saw. But here was one of those officers who was asking the question about whether to move Mr. George Floyd's body in some way. Here's this moment. Oh, my face getting bad. Here, should we get his legs up? Oh, that's good? Oh, Roll him on the side. Okay. I just worried about the fed delirium or whatever. Okay, I suppose. I mean, in that mo in that moment, Joey Jackson, look, I'm going to give you the assignment in this moment of picking one of these defendants as your client. Is that the one, yeah, the idea of the one who's saying, should we turn him over? Should we do more here? He's a rookie. Is that the one you think has the strongest defense? Yeah, I, I really do, Laura. I think that certainly the, you know, the other officers, he's one of them, was a rookie officer and is going to say he didn't know better, et cetera. 
but he attempted, right, made an effort. It wasn't enough. He wasn't aggressive enough. He could have done significantly more. We know he's not charged with the issue as it relates to failing to intervene because prosecutors saw what he said. He is charged with failing to render medical aid. We'll see what occurs. But all of them should have been on that mantra, not should we turn him around, let's turn him around. The whole prosecution's case is predicated on the notion, and the chief could talk to this way better than I, of the preservation of life, what you're trained to do, the fact that you must intervene, the fact that you can't have someone laying face down because it represents a danger, the fact that this should not have occurred, and you allowed it to. You don't just defer to the senior officer. And so I think Lane has the best chance. The question for the jury as it relates to him, Laura, is going to be, did he do enough in suggesting that, hey, you know what, maybe we turn him over now? And, and Mr. Ramsey, if I can, just some, we, we are out of time here, but I, I know probably what you're thinking on this issue about the idea of trying to incentivize some way for a subordinate to feel comfortable with speaking out of turn, so to speak, and making sure that they are rewarded in some respects, not antagonized down the line for doing what Joey Jackson just said, right? Yeah, the culture has to shift where if an officer, regardless of how long they've been on the job, if they take action like that, they are supported. And that's important. And that's with their peers. That's with sergeants, lieutenants, police chiefs on down the line. Everyone has to play a role in that so that people feel comfortable stepping up and stepping forward when it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Thank you, Charles Ramsey, Joey Jackson. We'll keep everyone posted on what's happening and who else might take the stand. I appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you, Laura. You know, now on to the growing legal troubles for Donald Trump. The ex-president's longtime accountant just cut ties with him. And that could actually open up a whole new set of problems from a legal perspective because his accounting firm is calling Trump's financial statements unreliable. We're going to dig into what this could actually mean for Trump with someone who led the prosecution against Trump University. That's next. Look, as a prosecutor, testimony is good, but evidence, well, that's much better. And the New York Attorney General may now have at least 525,000 pieces of evidence on the Trump Organization. A letter from Trump's longtime accounting firm was released by the AG, and that number at the bottom is what's called a Bates number. It's the way you keep track of the number of documents you have on file page by page. And these were marked 525,838 and 839, 525,000 documents, more than that? Now, if you need help and a reminder keeping all of the Trump investigation straight, this is the one about his company's bookkeeping. So frankly, it's never a good sign when your accounting firm, you know, the bookkeeping aspect, when they bail or when they put the dates in writing. Even if you set aside the investigation, look, from a business standpoint, None of this helps when you're reportedly more than a billion dollars in the hole. Now, my next guest, he knows the office and what it means to dig into Donald Trump's records. Tristan Snell was lead prosecutor in the Trump University case while at the New York Attorney General's office, and he joins us now. Tristan Snell, nice to see you. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. You know, I'm really interested in, in first of all, the volume of all of these documents here, the number of pages here. But what does it say to you when you hear this notion of, say, the Mazars um, accounting firm saying, you know what, no go, you know, we're done here, your documents are not reliable. What does that signal to you? 
they're running for the exits. You know, they, uh, they, 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 they carried water for the Trump organization for decades, including in this matter. You know, remember, they basically said, we're not going to cough up a lot of these documents. Uh, you know, we don't, we're going to basically step into the shoes of the Trump organization and say that, uh, that Donald Trump has uh, some sort of privilege that lets him not uh, have these documents be produced. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they started off in this case uh, really standing shoulder to shoulder with the Trump organization. That is very much no longer true. And that's, a, you know, that's such a, a pivotal and critical moment here, because talking about 10 years worth of information no longer being reliable. And of course, when we're talking about as lawyers, you hear something that's not reliable. They're talking about what a fact finder might actually be able to hold credible, what might come in as evidence as well. But in this case, it speaks to essentially maybe the blame game here, right? Because you've got an accounting firm who receives the documents from the organization and they base their own reporting based on that. So if it's not reliable, what they're giving is not reliable. But how about what's happening right now in terms of how the Trump um, organization is even looking at this and taking it? They have a statement about this very finding and they say, while we are disappointed that Mazars has chosen to part ways, this February 9th, 2022 letter confirms that after conducting a subsequent review of all prior statements of financial condition, Mazars' work was performed in accordance with all applicable um, accounting standards and practices and, and principles, excuse me, and that such statements of financial condition do not contain any material discrepancies. This confirmation effectively renders the investigations by the DA and AG moot. Now, I can hear you, Tristan, sort of cackling a little bit at that realization of that particular thing. What does that say to you? Is that true? Is this say that, oh, you know what? They quit. It was about reliability. The AG's office, hmm, that's all obsolete now. You don't think the same thing, do you? Here's the thing. If you just get to slap a sentence on something that says, oh, don't worry, we didn't really look into these, it, you know, we didn't audit these, uh, but, you know, somehow everything in there is, uh, and, and then they're trying to say that everything in there uh, doesn't contain any material discrepancies. Just one building, 40 Wall Street, it's one of the iconic buildings of the financial district. Trump has owned it for a while. Uh, at one point, they had a 3,300% discrepancy between the value that was stated to tax authorities and the value that was stated to Deutsche Bank and other lenders. 3,300%. That's not a mistake. That's not a rounding error. That's not a miscalculation when you're doing Microsoft Excel. If that's not material, nothing is material. It's a good point to raise because it goes back to the substance and nature of the investigation itself, right? The idea of overvaluing, devaluation, all with an eye towards perhaps avoiding tax liability and other aspects as well. Tristan Snell, thank you so much. Nice to see you. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, you know, the trial of Sarah Palin, speaking of New York, the trial of Sarah Palin versus the New York Times, well, that's now over. But guess what? Her fight may not be done. Will she appeal after both a judge and now a jury have rejected her defamation case? And frankly, what would her chances be if she does appeal? That's coming up. Well, the verdict is in. The New York Times did not defame former Alaska governor and vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin. The unanimous decision came from nine jurors who began deliberating on Friday afternoon. 
The decision, however, was expected given that yesterday, District Judge Jed Rakoff ruled that Palin's attorneys didn't prove actual malice. The standard that you have to knowingly print something false or act in a way of disregarding what the truth was. And he would dismiss the case, he said, after the jury made its mind up. Now, Palin will now be awarded zero dollars in damages after now losing this case. And she says she's still hoping to appeal. Will you be appealing, Sarah? Governor Palin, will you be appealing? I hope so. I hope so, she says. I hope so. Well, an appeal could, of course, put New York Times versus Sullivan, the 1964 U.S. Supreme Court decision that established the so-called actual malice standard, right square in the hot seat resulting in larger implications for media and public figures and will be required to be able to prove a case of defamation. Let's discuss now with CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey, good to see you here today. I got to ask you, first of all, what was your reaction? Were you expecting there to be this, not just a dismissal prompted by the judge, but the idea of her not having met her burden? Was that surprising to you? No, it wasn't. I mean, the, the, the Times made a mistake. Uh, they admitted it right up front. They acknowledged it uh, as soon as it was brought to their attention. And the next morning, they corrected it. Um, this is what responsible people and responsible journalists do. Uh, they do make mistakes, but then they correct them. And the libel laws are not designed to punish journalists who act that way. So I think um, the the judge was right, the jury was right. Um, this was embarrassing for the Times, but it was not something that the libel laws, at least as they're currently constructed, is designed to address. And just so we're clear, I mean, the idea of mistake, I know you're very intentional with the language that you're using. You know, if somebody had printed something that was false and they did it with the disregard for the truth, they did it knowingly with the actual malice, that you corrected it wouldn't actually solve the problem if you printed it in the first instance in this way. But the idea of saying it's a mistake, which they said on the stand, was that it was not something that they did with actual malice. But you said that it was a mistake to actually take this to trial. This was one of the first times the New York Times has been on trial in a case like this in, what, 50 years, it seems? Why was that the error for them to take this to a trial? Well, I think the, the, a lot of the evidence came out in pretrial proceedings. And Judge Rakoff actually dismissed the case, but he was overruled by the Court of Appeals who said that uh, Sarah Palin was entitled to her day in court, that she was entitled to try to prove the case. And I thought the Court of Appeals was wrong. I thought this was not a case that should have gone to trial, but it did go to trial and it had the right result, at least as far as as far as I, I'm, I'm concerned. You know, the, the risk here is that um, an appeals court um, or, or, or the Supreme Court takes the opportunity in this case to try to rewrite libel laws. And, and, and some conservatives, including Clarence Thomas and, and Neil Gorsuch, have said they do want to rewrite the laws to make it easier for people to sue to sue journalists. And, um, no, no, Jeffrey, you've you got it all, you got it all wrong. That. The Supreme Court never wants to go back on their precedent. They don't reevaluate and reassess precedent, Jeffrey. I don't, what could you possibly be referring to? An active judiciary? This is a shocking concept. I hope you can see the obvious sarcasm on my face in this. No, but you I, are I, right I, I, <laughs> to think about how they are trying to reassess this very notion. If they were to look at and reevaluate the libel laws, is it because in the 24-7 news cycle, it's just too hard for a public figure to prove malice? 
No, you know, I don't. Th this is a case where the law isn't broken, as far as I'm concerned. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think um, the the fact is um, most journalists uh, should not be sued for what they do. I, I think um, the the uh, the whole idea behind the 1964 case that you referred to, New York Times against Sullivan, was that you know you have to give journalists some freedom, um, to, even to make mistakes as long as they don't do it intentionally or recklessly, because if you start imposing liability on journalists for every mistake that they make, they're going to be run out of business by plaintiffs. That's what was happening um, to the New York Times in 1964 in a case in Alabama. They were in the brink of being bankrupted by cases like this because they had a hostile judiciary in Atlanta during the civil rights era. That could happen again if the courts relax the standards on libel. You know, everybody likes to beat up on the press, and I know we make a lot of mistakes, and it's frustrating. But if you, you create a situation where journalists can be sued right and left, journalism is going to disappear, and that would be unfortunate for all of us, I think. Well, for that in that same vein, though, that's why this case is uh, kind of the the thorn in the side, not from a journalist perspective, but in many respects, if the, if the goal is or the thought here is undermining and chipping away from the credibility of the press, Sarah Palin was successful in getting the New York Times to admit to a mistake. Not that mistakes have never been made in the past or ever, but you've seen the attacks on the press. You've seen the way in which the from fake news, not just with the network for other people. Was there a victory in that that even went to trial and having that day in court? Because you can imagine the talking point now going forward about, well, what other mistakes may have been made? But, but remember, in fairness to The New York Times, they recognized their error as soon as it was pointed out to them right. and they corrected it the next day. So there didn't need to be a lawsuit to uh, to force them to acknowledge their error. That's why I think this was a mistake to allow this lawsuit to proceed. Yes, it's true. The New York Times ultimately prevailed. But remember, you know, bringing this case to trial cost millions of dollars, in which the New York Times and its insurance company can afford. But, you know, when you start suing community newspapers or small or, or small, small journalistic outlets that can't afford this kind of defense, that's when you're going to have uh lawsuits running, running, um, running journalism, journalists out of business. I mean, it's what happened to the Gawker website. You know, you had a powerful plaintiff who could finance a, a lawsuit that drove Gawker out of business. You know, if you start relaxing the standards on libel cases, that can happen more and more. And I just don't think society would be well served by that. Well, I tell you, these are the same attorneys from the Gawker case representing Sarah Palin. So right. I guess it comes full circle in a different direction. Jeffrey Tubin, thank you so much. All righty, Counselor. Now, listen, last night on the fourth anniversary of the Parkland School Massacre, we shine light on the inaction by our leaders who had promised to do more to curb gun violence in America. Now today, for the very first time, a gun manufacturer is being held liable for a United States mass shooting. But not because of Congress, but because of the hard work of families of victims killed in the Sandy Hook shooting. So will this serve as a giant wake-up call for the gun industry? We'll talk about it next. Tonight, a small semblance of justice for the families who lost their loved ones in the Sandy Hook school shooting. 
announcing today an historic $73 million settlement in their lawsuit against the now-bankrupt gun manufacturer Remington and its four insurers. Now, Remington manufactured the Bushmaster AR-15-style rifle that was used to kill 26 people, six adults, and 20 children in Newtown, Connecticut. This settlement marks the first time that a gun manufacturer is being held liable in some way for a mass shooting. It's a remarkable feat, frankly, when you consider the more than 267 mass shootings in America since 2009 and the roughly 1,500 lives lost. Now, why is that? Because under federal law, gun manufacturers are shielded from most liability. The so-called Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act of 2005 gained praise from then-President George W. Bush. He claimed at the time that it would further stem, quote-unquote, frivolous lawsuits. Now, little did he know, perhaps, that seven years later, a shooter would tear over two dozen families apart and that they would have to rely on a novel legal strategy to try to attain some form of accountability. And novel, it really is. Frankly, it reminds you of an approach taken with respect to big tobacco. It came down to how they marketed the product by using a Connecticut law that protects consumers from deceptive marketing practices. So what was that practice here? Well, they went after Remington by taking issue with how they marketed these combat weapons to civilians, using militaristic and hyper-masculine slogans to reach out, it seems, to the troubled young men like, well, the one who carried out the attack at Sandy Hook. The immunity protecting the gun industry is not bulletproof. We hope they realize that they have skin into the game. But this case was never about damages in the sense of compensation. It, it was about damages in the sense of forcing change. It was always about the damage, however. And it took more than seven years for the families who brought this suit to see even this kind of victory. Even saying the word victory, given what was at stake and what they have lost, feels stomach-turning. And the amount of time spent was not just negotiating for the sake of negotiation. It seems there was a deeper, more strategic approach. These plaintiffs wanted the internal corporate documents that just might be the key to prevention and, dare I say, accountability by going after the insurance companies and ultimately the bottom line of the companies as a way to force the change the attorneys spoke of. But let's be clear. No sum of money, no matter how large, could ever compensate for the lives lost and the pain these families bear every single day. I will never forget walking into the funeral home and seeing her in her casket. We had an open casket funeral and her friends worked tirelessly to make sure that we didn't see the remnants of what happened to her. What she went through was brutal. The medical examiner could not be certain if she was shot nine or 11 times due to ricochets and re-entry wounds. Every single day we miss who Rachel would be. True justice would be our 15-year-old healthy and standing next to us right now. But Benny will never be 15. He will be six forever because he is gone forever. Gone forever, but never forgotten. 
This should be yet another wake-up call for Congress because it shouldn't have taken this long for the families to get here. Frankly, it shouldn't have taken these families to have to carry this particular torch. You know, we keep hearing in the wake of these tragedies from both sides about the need for action. Well, on an issue like school safety, on an issue like preventing mass shootings, we should all be on the same side. Theirs. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with the great Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.